Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we have three different Kickstarter previews that we are going to look at today. The Knave RPG 2nd Edition, Amazing Encounters and Quests, and the Emporium of Wonders. So three different Kickstarters that we're going to look at today. Then we're going to have a kind of a special feature. I ran a game last night and it was really, really fun. And rather than just me kind of tell you about my game and all of us can just enjoy what happened in my game, I wanted to offer some tips that I learned from the game that I ran yesterday. It was a really, really fun game. One of the biggest, like best fun set piece battles I can recall running in years. And I thought it would be fun to talk about that and talk about the things that I think made it really good. So you can take some of this and you can use it in your own game. And then we are going to cover the remainder of the April 2023 Patreon questions for the Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work that I do, is, is brought to you by the Patreon. Patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a des- dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets, Volume 1 and 2, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, and a whole bunch of other exclusive materials, video previews, and other things. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So we have three Kickstarters that we're going to talk about today. I don't know what's up with May, but May is apparently Kickstarter month. The first one is a really big one. It's just kind of exploded out there. It, it hit like $250,000 in its first day. And that is the Knave RPG by Questing Beast. By Ben over at Questing Beast. It is currently at 6,000 backers. And it just, I think it just launched yesterday or the day before yesterday. Great big Kickstarter. One of the neat things about the Knave RPG is the first version already exists. You can pick it up on DriveThruRPG. I have it on DriveThruRPG. It is a really interesting, lightweight, old school RPG. It's meant to kind of capture the essence of the origins of D&D back in the BX days, back in the, the, the 1980s. And it actually has no classes. One of its big features is it's very heavy on attributes, but doesn't have any classes. And instead, it has jobs and professions, but it's got like a hundred different jobs and professions that your character could be. So it focuses heavy on background. It has spells and spell casting in there, but that's also handled in a particular way. And it's meant to be this kind of low low power low stake or high stakes low power dangerous version of the the kind of the origins of D&D in a very lightweight rules light system where you can build a character very quickly big focus on random generation and all sorts of stuff like that so there is the nave the nave 1.0 RPG which you can pick up on drive through RPG right now if you want to see what that's like but then there's also a preview man money's going up while I'm talking there's also a preview available of nave nave 2.0 nave second edition and you can get it slight i'm gonna give a little slight thing you have to get it through drive through rpg so rather than one of my things which is give it to me give if you're gonna give me a sample make it as easy as possible if you put it on drive through rpg i can kind of live with that but mostly because i have a drive through rpg account i went through the trouble of going to get the nave preview so we will pull it up right now 17 page preview that shows you what it's going to be like and gives you a good idea of what you're going to get so it's a 90 page rpg so even in its biggest form it's still pretty lightweight a 90 page rpg is definitely pretty lightweight 75 different d100 random tables so even if you're not using the game there's a whole pile of random tables that you can use to generate all kinds of stuff he also is the developer of maze rats maze rats is another lightweight system that's got tons and tons of different random tables in it so you know that ben loves loves some random tables i love some random tables so i'm on board six ability scores that are here the weird thing about the ability scores is you roll three dice and that tells you not how many points you got in one of your abilities it tells you which ability got one point so the maximum number of points that you can have in an ability score is three and that would mean you have zero in all the other five you can have only three points across all six of your of of your ability scores as you go but as you level they start to go up and it's straight rolling you roll and you add that ability modifier to it there's no proficiency or anything like that here's your d100 list of careers everything from arcanist to painter falconer scribe groom mason shepherd dyer all different kinds of things and the 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 background that you pick is what gives you certain items that you carry. And I think you actually roll a couple of times. You pick two careers from the list and you can either pick them or roll them. So if you want to generate your character, you roll them real quick. A lot of a big focus on item slots. And one of the interesting thing is that the item slots that you have, which are based on your 10 plus your constitution bonus, 
those are kind of your hit points. As you take damage, as your hit points go down, when they go down below zero, you start to lose item slots, which means your you know, bad things happen to your gear. And then he talks about like, you know, it kind of it blows up like some of your gear, you can stab, frozen and burned. The item slot, you know, each point of damage fills an item slot with an appropriate wound, stabbed, frozen, burned, etc. from the highest slot to the lowest. So you have like your item slots and your item slots mean that you're losing gear while you are taking damage. Pretty interesting. There is a leveling up system. You get your hit points go up, you get a new title. And I think as you level up, you get to add one to three different ability scores. So your ability scores go up pretty steeply as you because you get to add the three different ones so all of you know, multiple abilities are starting to go up as you as you level up checks are handled the same way we're used to you do a d20 i think that it has a variable set of target number from zero so start with 11 and then add a difficulty rating from one to 10 five being the default so that means d16 is sort of your your general target number which means that early on the likelihood you're going to be able to accomplish something is essentially you know one chance in four but as you level up when you get to 10 now it becomes the default would be 16 so it'd be basically one you know three chances three three chances out of four that you would succeed so that's how you start to get better at everything as you as you're leveling up Neat system about travel, what happens when you're when you're going on on, on traveling, weather weather thing. And then you, here you're starting to see some of the random tables. What are some of the structures? What are some of the regions? And you can use this to kind of build your whole world. So again, I'm a sucker for random tables. I'm a sucker for this kind of idea of the generation. So I went all in. I wanted the physical book. I want the PDF. I want all of the extra stuff that comes in it. So I kind of went in all in on the, uh, uh, all in on the Kickstarter. Looks really neat. Re- looks really fun. Monsters in here, you can see it has that kind of abbreviated monster stat block. AP is armor class. I don't know why they don't just call it. Though well, there was one thing in here, and it's, it's like, like why I kind of wish you just choose is that you can either have the player roll on stuff or have the dm roll on stuff so an ap for example is sort of rolling a defense check if you want to have the bandit roll a defense check against the static amount of a, the attack that a character does you can roll a die and add two and that's sort of what the defense role would be so you can either have like the player role everything or the dm role everything or then switch one or the other i kind of wish they just pick and i think it just makes sense to have like armor class i don't know but whatever not everything not everything has to be you know exactly the way i want it so really neat so 17 page preview you can check out the preview see if it's the kind of style again you might want to go pick up nave 1.0 which you could take a look at as well something you could take a look at right away although i have a feeling that the minute the kickstarter is over Nave second edition will be available in a PDF to all of us. So it looks really good. So check that out. The Nave RPG, Nave RPG 2.0. You can find a link down in the show notes below. I think it's really cool. And I think even if it's one, you know, a lot of systems like this, you're like, well, I never have an intention of playing it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to just try it out a little bit, but lots of random tables, lots of ideas. It just sort of gets you in the mood of this style of game. It gets you thinking about it. So even if you're playing 5e, you can still look at this and get ideas from it. So I think it's really cool. The next Kickstarter we're going to look at is Amazing Encounters and Quests. This is by my friend Christian Zuck. He has done a number of different, he's run a couple of different Kickstarters. The previous one was called Amazing Encounters and Locations. It was a great big book of heavy focus on on tactical, cool, beautiful, full color battle maps and the encounters that you could build around them. And Christian has done it again, 36 encounters, 36 maps, 350 different versions that you can get, all to kind of give you this opportunity to try this stuff out. Really, really neat stuff. One click to get to the preview. Thank you, Christian. It's so easy to get to the preview. Big 23-page preview. Big, beautiful, full-color art. Really nice, full-color design. Excellent-looking book. I really like the previous one. If you were looking to have, and there's a lot of people that just want, give me kind of easy to easy drop-in encounters that I can put into my game. If you're looking for that kind of thing, and really a whole big pile of maps that you could just keep in a directory. Works really well for online play. This is something where I think online play really benefits from this, that you have this giant collection of maps that you can use in your verse, various virtual tabletops. Christian knows exactly how to format these so they fit well on a virtual tabletop. You have encounter levels, the encounter itself, and you can see sort of the tactical map. This is this is a kind of a fun three-dimensional map that you can that you can use. It has the oh look, a were goat. That's cool. Evil were goats. Really kind of neat encounters that are built around beautiful different maps. Here's like a nice town one. You know, all kinds of 
cool stuff. To me, the real benefit of something like this is building up a huge collection of maps that you can use for all different kinds of, enc of encounters. And if you have ideas about particular encounters you just want to drop into the middle of the game you're already running, this is a great book to take a look at. So this is going to be delivered through Drive-Thru RPG. You can get the hardcover version of it or you can get the PDF. The PDF plus digital maps, that seems like the pack that's going to be really, really valuable. And uh, you can see Amazing Encounters in Places was the previous book that, that Christian had put together. Big, beautiful book, lots and lots of cool, colorful art. Really, really, really neat stuff. But I think that where this really shines is when you're using a cool virtual tabletop for your for your players. So you can find a link down in the show notes below. Check out the free sample. If you want to actually see some other parts of this, you can look at Amazing Encounters in Places, which is already available on DriveThruRPG, and it shows you those maps as well. And it also looks like it's going to have conversions done directly for Roll20 and, and Foundry. I think you can also just get the digital maps and then you can drop them in whatever VTT. It's like, you know, I like, I like me some Owlbear Rodeo. So really neat thing. Check it out in the show notes below. The third Kickstarter I want to talk about is The Emporium of Wonders by M.T. Black. M.T. Black, one of my favorite creators, an excellent guy. He has made hundreds and probably hundreds of different products available in the DMs Guild over the years. He's now been building a lot of different products that are available for very low prices on DriveThruRPG. And the Emporium of Wonders is his new project on Kickstarter where it's all piles of magic items, 400 different magic items available in this, in this book. It is PDF. When you when you pick it up, it is both for the PDF. It's about $11. Very straightforward. And you can get the PDF of the Emporium of Wonders and the voucher to be able to get a print-on-demand version from DriveThruRPG directly. It's black and white, so the price to actually print it is going to be... You, you'll have to pay the price of printing, but the price of printing is actually very cheap. So it looks like that's going to be a, a good deal. And thank you, MT Black. I told him right before the show. I said, do not make me embarrass you in front of all of all of my all of my friends if i click on there and i don't see some sample items and it looks like he said click here for some sample items he just added it thank you empty black you're the best so here are some examples of the kinds of magic items you're going to get in this book you know a lot of neat stuff i really you know that black and white art i'll tell you a lot of the a lot of publishers these days have been going towards this black and white line art and it's really fantastic i've been using it in the city of arches other ones have been using it so i think it's you know it's interesting like do you like full color or do you like, do you actually prefer the black and white stuff? I don't know. Let me know in the show notes what you think. Looks like a great big pile of different kinds of magic items. So if you want to see the sorts of items you're going to get, here's this excellent, here's this excellent sample. Thank you, MT Black, for putting this up here so we can actually see the kind of stuff that's going to be in there. You can also see a table of contents that lists all of the different items that's going to be available in here. Here's actual common items, uncommon items, rare items. Very rare, probably some legendary, right? Legendary items. So you can see all of the different items that's going to be in here on rollable tables. So you can roll on this and pull up, pull up some of your items. Very cool stuff. I've really loved all of the stuff that MT Black has been putting out. You can see he's been putting out the Is Kendar Player's Handbook, a whole 5e, a full copy of the 5e SRD kind of wrapped around the world of Is Kendar, which is sort of his region of a world that you can build, that you can build your campaign with. You can see a whole bunch of different products that he's been developing over the time. And if you do the value tier of $25, you get PDFs of all of it. So if you don't have a lot of MT Black's fantastic work, this is a great way to get access to all of his PDFs and download and enjoy. Looks really cool. Again, you can find a link to the Emporium of Wonders down in the show notes below. Really, really neat stuff. Last night, I had one of the most fun and cinematic great big battles that I have run in role-playing games. I'm lucky to have run a few of these kind of great big battles, but I thought it would be fun to talk about this particular big battle and offer some thoughts, some some tips, some experiences that maybe could be useful to those of you also running these things. The kind of thing that really hit me, that 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 made an impact on me, that I think will change the course of the other kind of games that I run, and I want to share those with you in case you find them that you find them to be useful as well. So last night, I, this is going to have spoilers for the hardcover adventure Empire of the Ghouls, put together by Richard Green for Cobalt Press, great big hardcover campaign adventure, covers a huge span of Midgard. It's been a really, really fun, really, really fun campaign. I've been enjoying it a lot, and we just finished chapter three last night. Chapter three is called The Blood Marriage, and it's about 
about this wedding that is taking place between the ghouls, the ghouls of the ghoul Imperium and the vampires of Morgoth. And they're forging an alliance and the alliance they're forging is going to be bound by the wedding of these two of a, of a, of a ghoul and a vampire, this vampire woman and a ghoul. And they're going to get married as, a, as an act of symbolism of the connection of these two super powerful undead groups. So the goal of the characters is to go there and disrupt it. Go screw up the wedding. And so for a few months now, the characters have been making their way to this ruined land known as Nordheim. And in my version, I've made a lot of modifications to it because I was, I, you know, that's what we do, right? We make modifications to the adventures when we're running it. And one of the things I wanted about Nordheim is that Nordheim is essentially an area of the world where Chernabog, the you know, sort of evil God had shattered the land and it broke it apart. And below it is a layer of hell that there's a, a layer of hell that is sitting below it. And there's all these earth moats floating over this shattered land. And on one of these earth moats is the midnight temple, this evil temple that actually existed back when the dwarves built it. It used to be underground. So after this evil God shattered the land, it broke out and now the temple is floating there, but the temple is free floating in the air. There's all these earth moats where you can kind of connect it. There's a bridge that sort of connects it to these ruined rocky things kind of going on there. But the characters had made their way down there. They found a back passageway to get to the midnight temple by essentially doing a Mario style jump puzzle across these broken earth moats to get to the back door of the temple. And they got to the temple itself. And I want to, I want to show what I had done. So here is the picture of the temple when the characters had opened it up. And you can see, like, there is, let's see if we can zoom. There is a whole lot of guys in here, a whole lot of ghouls, and a whole lot of vampires. The characters were all in this area down here. They were all, uh, they, they were, this area is on the outside. It's this last piece of it that's kind of shattered. They were peering through the secret door to see what was going on. And they saw that there was a great big event going on here. And the neat thing was, this is this is one of those times where like having a nice Dwarven Forge setup really made a difference because I pulled it back and it was all lit up and it had all these guys and all the players were like, oh man. And they were like, this is an S tier setup. They were like, this is, yeah, this is really cool. And it was mostly because I used this like Serpent Temple set that I, I actually just picked up some of the pieces from Dwarven Forge, other pieces I picked up during the Dungeon of Doom Kickstarter a few years ago, but I put it together in this like two layer temple, nice big, like two foot, you know, two one foot sections, uh, one elevated over the other. So the X, you know, there was a lot of Z factor and everything like, like that was in there. So the setup was really cool. And you can see that in the center of it is this big, right? There's this glowing obelisk right in the center. And they could tell that the obelisk was there to uh, basically the energy of the obelisk is what was keeping the whole temple afloat. So they knew like if we can destroy that obelisk, we can send this entire temple down into a layer of hell. We don't even have to worry about killing all these guys. We can disrupt the wedding by just hitting that. The one complication they found out is over this this little area down here, this white this white area, hanging above it was an NPC that they had left in another town who got captured by the ghouls and brought here as part of a sacrifice to again to kind of bind this. This is a a shadow fey uh, traveler named Barnabas that was an NPC that the characters had gone with. And that actually leads into chapter four because Barnabas was the protector and bodyguard of Duke Avgost, Archduke Avgost, who has now been captured by the ghouls and taken away. And they found this out because Barnabas was captured. And they're like, if Barnabas is here, where's Duke Avgost? And they're like, they got split up and Barnabas is brought here. Avgost is brought somewhere else. And now they have to save Barnabas to figure out what happened to Avgost. So that added a big thing. So what we did here is I built a situation. And the situation was we have an area, we have this, this, this great big, this great big evil temple. We've got this, this, this obsidian pillar in the center, evil obsidian pillar in the center. We have a ton of vampires, a ton of ghouls. Some of them look really powerful. Some are kind of your, your, your mook vampires and mook ghouls, but even mooks are really dangerous, right? Like in here, like a, a low end vampire, still a vampire. They're still really dangerous. And there's, you can tell that there must be 20, 25 people here, right? Or 20 people here. There's a lot of dudes and there's five of them at level seven. They're going to have a hard go. In fact, this was double the deadly challenge rating of, of monsters. It was a ton of monsters. You can see there's like little acolytes and a priest up there. Tons of stuff, which meant they can't just go in. And I told them, I'm like, you can't just kick in the door and use your grapple gun and shoot right into the center of the room and 
punch a dude in the face and hope that it's going to do any good. And the players are like looking at me and they're looking at each other and looking at me. And I was like, what? And they're like, nothing. And I saw them and a couple of them are conspiring. Like a couple of the players are like talking to each other because they knew what was coming up. Right. And they're like talking. And I'm like, that's cool. Plan all you want. So then they had some plan. And one thing I did, which I think was rather smart, is I started to have bolts of evil lightning smashing this little area out here with the intent that you can't just go stay in the doorway. You're going to have to get your ass into that temple. And I was like, a couple bolts hit nearby, didn't hurt anybody. Then all of a sudden I started rolling to see if they started to get it. And they're like, okay, I guess we're going in because we can't stay out here and get hit by lightning. And my wife is like, you just put in that lightning to get us through the door. And I'm like, yes, I did. I'm like, no, I'm a vehicle for storytelling. I'm a vehicle for the tales of another world. And in that other world, you can't hug the door. Get your ass into the temple. I didn't make a two foot beautiful thing so you could sit at the door and shoot arrows the whole time because lightning bolts are coming down. So then, and this is what was really cool. And this is what one of the tips, which is like set up the situation to allow the players and allow the characters to create really cinematic in situations to do really cinematic stuff. This is not about tactical wargaming. This isn't about them kind of moving their pieces around in order to get just the right angle. This is about sharing a crazy big event. This is about the crazy 88 scene in Kill Bill. It's about massive cinema stuff. It's John Wick style people shooting and cutting the bullets out of the air with their swords kind of stuff. So it's really cool. And boy, did they deliver. Now, my players and I, we've been playing together for a long time. They know about cinematic storytelling. They know that there's lots of things they can get away with. And that's probably one of my big tips, which is go ahead and make it really, really hard by putting like 25 really powerful guys out there, but then let them get away with a lot, right? Really, when you make it this hard, you can really be on the side of the characters and you can really let them get away with a lot of stuff as an example. So I, I told them like, this is probably not a situation where you want to like, one of the characters is a, I forget what the race is, but they're like the hedgehog people in Midgard. He's like a hedgehog guy who's a rogue. And his favorite thing is he has a grapple gun. So he can fire his grapple gun. It's like Batman. He shoots the grapple gun. He goes zipping across and he does, he does things. And, and more than once he has fired the grapple gun into a room full of a bunch of bad guys and then gotten beaten. So I'm like, if you do that, like, it's going to be really bad for you. And he's like, uh-huh. Right. And, and so they're talking about what they're doing talking about other stuff. And then they open the door and he's like, I take my grapple gun and I shoot it right at that obsidian, the obsidian monolith, the obsidian pillar there. And I'm like, okay. And he goes zipping across the obsidian monolith. And remember all the ghouls and everybody, they're not like ready to fight. They're at a wedding. So they're all standing there and they look and here comes this, this, you know, this humanoid, humanoid hedgehog person. He goes, I zip over there. And then I pee on the, I pee on the monolith. And I'm like, okay. And I'm like, so the only, everything goes dead quiet, right? The priestess who was there giving the ritual, the bride and the groom, this beautiful vampire bride and this groom, his you know, ghoul groom dressed in this thing. The whole place is dead quiet. And the only sound in the whole temple is the sound of HB peeing on this evil monolith, this, this evil obsidian pillar. And all of a sudden, and I cracked myself up. I, I started breaking up. I was like, the, then the only next sound is the sound of the bride who bursts into tears She because <laughs> her day is ruined, right? She had this beautiful wedding planned with all of her ghoul and vampire friends. And now this hedgehog person just zipped over there and is now peeing on the evil monolith right in front of everybody. And I'm like, so there's this moment of peeing on the monolith, then the bride bursting into tears because her, her, her beautiful wedding day is ruined. And then all of a sudden, like, the whole place explodes into violence. Like everybody's like, ah, and vampires and ghouls. So a whole bunch of vampires and ghouls descend upon HB. And I'm like, he's done, but he did it. Like I told him, I said, don't go in the thing. And the first vampire comes up and hits him like with a sword because the vampire groom hits him with a sword. He takes like 16 damage and he goes, I transpose with Winasia. Well, Winasia is a minotaur paladin and Winasia has an ability that if a friend takes an attack, they can transpose places. And now Winasia is standing there in the middle of everybody instead of HB. <laughs> and Winasia, so then they're all like, what is going on? You know, HB is now in the back. Winasia is standing there. And then Winasia takes this powerful artifact that she's been carrying now for all this time called the Holy Robes of Sister Adeline, which does like a nuclear anti-undead bomb and fires it off against all of the vampires in that section. Immediately disintegrates like four, you know, two of the two of the low-end ones immediately disintegrate. Everybody, all the other vampires are screaming and they're blasted back and the whole place just goes 
apeshit. Our wizard goes in. He starts throwing fireballs, blowing things up. At one point, the guy who's hanging above the pillar, this whole section down here opens up into a hole that is going down to hell and they're getting ready to drop the guy into hell. Well, they, the, the, our, our wizard dwarven gunsmith says, no problem. And he aims his gun at the hostage, at Barnabas, their ally, and fires. But the bullet isn't the one that hits him. It's a bullet teleports him 30 feet in a different direction. And it teleported him out of safety. And the dude who was getting ready to come is like, man, you must have really hated that guy if you came all the way here just to shoot him, right? And so they get into this big fight. So then my wife's character, Bruno, who's this huge barbarian bear folk just starts grabbing ghouls and throwing them down the pit one after the other just every round grabbing a person throwing them in the pit everyone else is running on versi who's this crossbow wielding ranger just starts hammering magical shot after magical shot into the unholy pillar which is starting to crack stuff is pouring out of it one of the attendants runs over to clean up the pee right because he's like trying to make everything better like the wedding's not ruined yet i can clean up this he's standing there trying to clean up the pee but then all of a sudden cracks are hitting the obelisk the obelisk is now bleeding black blood he's trying to clean that up too it's just bedlam and the whole scene for an hour and a half was just bedlam of crazy things going on characters dropping at one point when asia the minotaur paladin got hit with a, a vampire bit her, and, bit her and crit and did 30 damage on the crit and she used a cobalt press spell called divine divine retribution which dishes the same damage back to the opponent so they took 31 radiant damage back and just burst into ash and died so <laughs> when asia killed a vampire by dropping to zero the whole battle was like that. It was just this fantastic, huge battle, hour and a half. During it, they finally shattered the pillar, and the whole place is breaking apart. Ghouls are falling out. A bunch of ghouls spider climbed away. I'm using the new spider climbing ghouls of the playtest of Tales of the Valiant. So I'm like, some of the ghouls, and then the bride, the, the bride and the, the person who was giving away the bride were really powerful vampires. And she's like getting ready to just start tearing people to shreds. But the whole place is breaking up, and her... The, the guy who was giving her away, who isn't her dad, but works for her dad, grabbed her and then the two of them teleported away. He's like, this is too bad. I'm not going to let you get killed by these bunch of numbskulls peeing on our evil unholy obelisk. So he grabs her and they teleport away. So I did a lot of like, what would the character, what would the enemies do when all this is going on? Some of them didn't stick around. The priestess who was running the show, eventually the obelisk exploded and a shard of it just went right through her heart and killed her. So she was really powerful and she had like 90 hit points. But I said, instead of just worrying about hit points, how about when the thing explodes, it just blows up and a big black obsidian piece of the shard goes right through her heart and kills her dead. All that sort of cinema, like flowing around, really fun. Character players got to use all of their abilities. They got to blow things up. They got to fire things or running around. It was just awesome. And, and what I think really helped were, were a few different things, a few, a few things that, that worked on there. And, and so I'm, some of the tips that I'm, I wanted to kind of share is one, we had lots of monsters, way more monsters than they could handle, but I let them get away with lots and lots of shenanigans. They got to prep themselves. They got to get in the right position. They didn't get quite a surprise round, but what I told them was, you guys can go in whatever initiative order you want and the monsters will go last. So that we didn't do like a surprise round, but I said like, you guys get to control your entry. You get to decide who goes first. You get to decide everything and the monsters will go last. And that gave them a big advantage without quite the surprise round. It's almost like a surprise round, but not quite. So that really worked well, like giving them lots of monsters that were way harder than they should be able to normally take, but then letting them get away with murder. Literally, they got away with murder. My wife's character just throwing, that was so awesome when she like three different ghouls, she just grabs them and throws them down the pit one right after the other. And it was like 90 damage she did because every one of those is 30 hit points worth of ghoul that she's thrown down a pit. I was like, it's so cool. And why do I care? I got 25 ghouls on the table. I don't want them all there. So that worked really well. Another one is a trick that I've been using. You can find this in the Lazy DMs Companion. You can also find it in Forge of Foes. I've also written about it on Sly Flourish. It's something I really, really like. And even however you're running lots and lots of monsters, whatever techniques you use, I think that this one trick is a really great way to run lots of monsters, 20, 25, 30, 50 monsters. And what, it, what I call it is the damage pool. And the way it works is that instead of tracking damage for individual monsters, you know how many hit points any individual monster has. And you write that number down and you track damage in one pool that's done to any of the man monsters that are out there that are of that type. In this case, I use the same, there's a dirty trick too. I use the same stat block for ghouls and vampires for the low level ones. They were all challenge rating two. And I just used the same stat block. It was actually the Forge of Flows, Forge of Flows. It was the Forge of Foes stat block that we're using in the general use 
templates, which you'll find in Forge of Foes. It's really, really cool. But you can actually build it directly from the table that's in the free sample of Forge of Foes. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes below. And so I said, they're all basically just CR2s. And I flavored them differently. This gets into differentiate with flavor and improvisation that they all had the same stats. They all had, and, and I lowered their hit points because there were so many of them. I, I think they normally have like 40 or 50. And I'm like, we're going to give them 30 hit points straight. So all of these guys, there were about 15 or 20 of them, 15 of them. They all had about 30 hit points each. And no matter which one of them, the characters attacked, the damage was getting done to the damage pool. And the minute the damage pool hit 30, that monster died. Whichever one took that damage is dead. And then you reset the you reset the damage threshold again. And if they take like a fireball, you add up all of the damage of all of the creatures who are hit by the fireball and apply that to the damage tally. And for every divisible version of 30 is another monster that's dead. So if they do a total of 90 damage, three of the ghouls immediately die. Even if they made their save or they failed their save. You still roll the fails and the fail, fail you still roll saving throws to see who made it and who failed. But then of the results of those, you add it all together, figure out what the total amount of damage was and then apply that to the damage threshold and then for every 30 points that that damage threshold has that's how many ghouls die so it means you only have to track damage in one place for 15 guys you don't have to have a list of how much damage each one took it's how much damage did the threshold take if this isn't making sense take a look in the show notes below where i talk about running hordes and in there i talk about using this idea of a damage pool it once you get it in your head once you figure it out it works really well Another trick is make sure to tell the players. You can say, by the way, I'm going to be using a damage pool for all these guys. So whatever damage you're doing to any of them is happening to all of them, which means sometimes one of them might get hit a whole lot and it feels like you're never killing that guy, but you'll watch other ones that are dying really fast because you've been doing so much damage to the one over here. Essentially, they're all, they're all using the same pool of hit points. And every time that pool of hit points, every time the amount of damage that hit point pool takes drops to the amount of damage that one monster has, that monster is, is brought away. So it's really, really neat. So that's that's a great way to run a lot of monsters really easily, even if you're rolling all your attack rolls and everything like normal, which is what I did. There weren't so many that I had to find and I had to arbitrate how much the attack rolls were doing, which is the other part of running a horde. I didn't have to do that, but I did. I, there was no way I was going to try to track hit points in all these dudes. So it worked really well. Lots of monsters, lots of shenanigans. Put lots and lots of dudes out there, but let the characters get away with a lot. Use a damage pool for lots of monsters that are of the same type is the other one. And then the third tip that worked really well is because I only needed one stat block for basically 30 different guys, even though some of them are vampires and some of them are ghouls, I just used the same stat block. I didn't care. I rolled the same attack rolls. I did the same amount of damage. They had the same amount of hit points. They had the same armor class. Nobody cared. Nobody knew. The one difference was I flavored some of the attacks differently. So when the ghouls attacks, they would claw and they would bite. And I would say, make a DC 12 constitution saving throw to see if they got paralyzed by the ghouls claw attack. And for the vampires, they'd say, make a DC 12 constitution saving throw or your hit points are reduced by the amount of necrotic damage done. So in this case, I think they did, I think they did like 10 damage each. Uh, the CR, the CR2s, I think, did 10 damage attack, and I would make some of it necrotic damage, and I would say if they took the necrotic damage, then their hit points would be dropped by that amount if they failed the saving throw. So that way, I added these just tiny little mechanics to differentiate vampires from ghouls, just enough for the players to say, I know that I'm getting bit by vampires and I'm getting slashed by ghouls, the ghouls are paralyzing me, the vampires are taking away my hit points and not letting me get them back again, but all I had to do was this very, very subtle tweak, and I was able to improvise all of that. I didn't have to have the stat blocks in front of me, I just did DC 12 and it was pretty straightforward and it worked really well. So you can essentially run like 25 or 30 different monsters with one stat block and, and say they're different, right? And you describe them differently and you describe their attacks differently, but behind the scenes, you're using the same stat block. It doesn't matter, right? The amount of damage you're doing, maybe you say some of it's necrotic. Maybe you say some of it's just slashing. It doesn't really matter. Maybe you add on a little kicker again, like make this DC 12 or your hit points are reduced or make this DC 12 or you're paralyzed, but you could just add that in there and it works really, really well. And I, I immediately knew that there was no way I was going to be using real stat blocks for all of these monsters. So I just used three different Forge of Foes stat blocks. I used a CR2 for the low-level guys. I used a CR4 for the mid-level guys, and I had a couple of CR7s. I think the, the Priestess was a CR7, and one of the Vampires was a CR7. Everybody else were CR4s. My CR4s and Forge of Foes hit pretty hard. They do 20 damage around or something like that. No, more than that. 30 damage? They do a lot of damage, the CR4s do. They do 15 damage on two attacks, I think. So lots of damage on those guys. So they were really, really dangerous, but I only had to use these three, and I had them printed out on a sheet of paper, and that was everything I needed, right? And I really feel like 
the eight stat blocks that we have in Forge of Foes that are general purpose stat blocks, you could probably play D&D. You could probably play 5th edition your whole life with those eight stat blocks, just reskinning them, reflavoring them. Some are low level, some are high level, and mixing and matching. The only difference would be bosses. Bosses, you really want to have a general stat block. For normal monsters, you can just improvise it all. It works really, really well. So that worked really well, and that was a really fun part of my game. I showed the one picture. Here's another another picture of the, the battle as it took place. There, you can see the, the badger that was our friendly hedgehog who peed on the obelisk you can see where they transpose positions but when asia is the minotaur here who's getting attacked by two a vampire and a ghoul officiant and then here's the wedding party here there's the bride this is the bride the, the vampire giving away the bride he's like a main villain she she was a ghoul that used to be a friend of one of the characters before she was turned into a dark ghoul she ended up getting falling into hell he is the groom he didn't know why he was there he didn't even like being there he's like i don't want to marry her right he's really has no interest in her at all but he's there because it's part of the ceremonial thing he ended up spider climbing away you can see the priestess right here down below she ended up getting killed by a shard of the obsidian thing when it broke and then what I did is I actually started like shaking it up and breaking away. The whole back end of it broke out. So you can see here where like the whole back of the place is broken up and that's because it was falling into hell and it's falling apart. And they had to use grapple guns and they had to use this crazy teleportation and leaps of faith to make their way onto the earth moats that were outside that were still stable while the entire pillar fell into hell. Really, really fun battle. Really cinematic. The thing that just grabbed me was about how we were all in the scene, right? We were all like there in the thing, talking about what's going on in the world. Everybody, very few people were worried about positioning or tactics or getting the ideal. It was all about like, what can we do? Like we're, we're, there's no way we're going to win this if we go about this traditionally. We're going to have to do some zany stuff to be able to do it. And they did tons of zany stuff and it was awesome. So I hope you enjoyed me talking about that. I hope it gives you some ideas for running your own games. You really, if you ever put these like double strength battles, these battles where it's like twice as hard as, as deadly on the table, you really need to be on the side of the players. You really need to be on the side of the characters. You set up the situation, but you want to watch them succeed and you want to give them the opportunities to succeed and do so through these really powerful cinematic ways. It's really fun. Let's do some Patreon questions. This is our final set of questions for April 2023 from the Sly Flourish from Sly Flourish patrons. Christopher M says, I was one of the recipients of the last after school RPG grant. Excellent. And we would like to thank you once again for giving those grants back to the community. Our club has gone from strength to strength with a lot of kids being super excited to play. My question is, do you have any advice on how to provide not for one con constant group, but for a growing community at large? We are expanding in ways I never expected and we have plenty of time and hands for the additional work. First of all, that's awesome. He's talking about every year my wife and I put together a little after school RPG grant program. It's not open now. I usually put it up. It's usually only open for a few days where we give some funding to different school groups for them to be able to put together their uh, after school RPG programs. And we usually, you know, again, we only have enough to fund so many and it usually <laughs> happens very, very quickly. And it is not open now, so please don't ask. But we on the show, we will, we will I, on the show, I will mention that it is open and then it'll be open for like a day and then it'll be, or a couple days and then it'll be, it'll be off again. And, yeah, so it's very, very cool that the, the the club has grown. And what do you do now? Well, first of all, I don't I don't really have good experience in this. I only run my own little D and D group. I don't run large organizations of people. My wife actually had some really good advice for that though, which was really like delegate, delegate, delegate. Find the other people. You know, who are your not exactly your replacements, but who can be? Who are the people that could stand in for you? Who are the people that are really on top of it, that really understand what's going on, that understand the value of it, that are reliable, that you can then say, hey, I want your help to do this. And you kind of think about this like running a casino where you have pit bosses, you have the person running the table, you have pit bosses who are running the tables, you have the, you know, the, 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 the shift boss who's watching the pit boss. I'm doing that scene from casino, right? The shift bosses are watching the pit bosses, the pit bosses are watching the tables and the eye in the sky is watching everybody. So it's kind of like that though. You, you essentially want to find the people who can do the job you're doing and delegate as much as you can to as many different groups. And you want to have sort of this distributed, this distributed set where different people are able to do the bigger jobs and pick up those different groups. And what do you really need, right? What are the things that you need? You need space. Where can you play? You need times. Where can people get together to, you know, where, where can, wh at what time can people get together? And, you know, all of the different things that you need to just get people playing. 
you don't really have to do a lot else. And I know I've seen this in organized play programs where there's this feeling of like, well, we want to have sort of a single storyline that everybody's involved in and we want to make sure that everybody's doing it consistently. I don't think I'd worry that much about that. I think you really just want to get groups together to play and that's it. Let them play what they're going to play. Let them play the systems they want to play, the games they want to play. Give them the materials that they need to be able to play. Give them the support they need. Maybe run some things where you have other DMs talking about the problems. Maybe there's an advantage in having them play the same adventure so that they can all talk among each other and come up with different ideas. But I wouldn't put too much control on it. I always used to say that the problem with organized play is the organized part, that we all just want to play. So trying to get like, what's the most important thing? Getting you know, f- five or six people with one DM at a table, at a place, at a time to play some games. That's what you want to do. So streamline and strip that. This is my advice. You asked, right? As though I know what I'm talking about, which I don't. But my feeling would be just trying to do the least amount of coordination you need to do to get groups together to be playing. Even if it's not in the same place, like maybe they're just, if you're just getting groups of people together, groups of kids together to go to somebody's house and play D&D, you've won. It doesn't have to be super organized. It doesn't have to be like super over, overarching. You don't want a lot of standards in play. This is the thing that I think, you know, when I complain about organized play, when I complain about the Adventures League and stuff like that, is I feel like for a long time, there was just too much attempt at control for things that didn't need to be controlled. All you need to do is get together to play. That's it, right? So time, location, resources, and the right people to get together to play a game. Christopher, I don't know if that helps. I hope that helps a little bit. And again, I'm really glad that the grant has worked out for you. That's, that, that's excellent to hear. Michael S. says, I don't know if you've ever used mythic monsters, but do you have any advice on building your own mythic monsters? I've tried to do it with reskinning, but need a lower challenge than what I can reskin. I feel the CR math for balancing mythic monsters might not be the best. Two times CR. How would you look at balancing a mythic monster? That's a good question. I have built mythic monsters. We have a couple of mythic monsters in Fantastic Layers. So yeah, we have had a couple of different ways that we did mythic monsters in Fantastic Layers. A mythic monster is essentially a monster that once it hits a certain hit point threshold, changes into something else. Oftentimes, these monsters will have like twice as many hit points as a normal version of the monster. And when their hit points turn to zero, they either get a bunch of temps or something else happens. We've done it a bunch of different ways. Wizards of the Coast has done it a few ways. They haven't actually made any mythic monsters. I think they did some mythic monsters in Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons. And then they had some mythic monsters in Mythic Odyssey of Theros. And then we haven't really seen any since and clearly they were trying a few different ways of doing it to see what worked and i don't think i've seen any since so i don't know that they felt like it worked out but an example is we have delicate the bloodbathe who is a cr18 144 hit points and fights out and as soon as delicate hits a certain level it turns into another version of it delicate turns into a rock a big bloody rock this is a vampire a stone giant vampire who then turns into a rock and so this is sort of an example it's not quite a mythic monster, but it's essentially a monster that turns into another monster after a certain point. The, the you know, you have not yet seen my final form sort of monster. That is one example that we put in, in Forge of Foes. Gemna, the world eater, is a lich, and she had the thing where she is inside of a big spider body. And at a certain point, she will the spider body will break apart and she will come out in her lich form. And that's the point when you can really, when you can really damage her. I think, yeah, so we have the iron, the iron golem spider. You have to kind of beat that before you can beat her. That's also kind of a mythic, a mythic monster. Not exactly because it's two totally different stat blocks. I think we have two that are more close to what you, what you've seen. So Kareth the Blade Queen is a very powerful uh, Merolith, the Merolith, you know, super powerful Merolith demon, CR 16, but she really kind of counts as two and in this case she has 189 hit points which is not terribly high at cr16 but then has this ability called blade queen's resilience when kara takes damage that would reduce her to zero she instead gains temporary hit points equal to her normal hit point maximum and removes any ongoing conditions and effects on her while she has these temporary hit points she is surrounded by an aura of swirling swords that extends 20 feet from her a hostile creature to Kareth that enters the area of the swords the first time succeeds on a dc 20 saving throw taking 27 slashing damage or failed saver half as much so she ex- she essentially drops to zero, gets all of her hit points back, and now has these blades. My, my funny bit, I, I, I kind of designed her initial design, and my thought was like, you know what a six-armed blade-wielding Marilith doesn't have? Enough blades, more blades. So we gave her more and more blades, and we're like, what if she had blades that were swirling around her all the time? Plus, she's hitting you with blades. I thought that would be fun. And so that's what she that's what she has. She has sword jaunt as a bonus action. She can teleport to the location of any one of her flying swords. So she has a flying, she has a, a bunch of 
she has a bunch of flying swords that are in the room with her and she can teleport to any one of those so she can move around. That way she had a lot of mobility. That was sort of like an action-oriented monster sort of idea. Varagon was our big guy. CR-30, fiendish gold dragon. Really, really powerful. You can see it managed to fit the whole stat block on one page, which we are very proud of. 546 hit points, tons of hit points. In Hell's Heart, when Varagon drops to fewer than half his full hit points, the shard in his chest flares brightly, his breath weapon recharges, enveloped in black and red fire, and is overcome by fiendish presence. At below half his hit points, Varagon loses his innate spellcasting, and his legendary action options change. So in this case, like, he has a bunch of spellcasting stuff he can do, but instead he gains these new, like, half hit point only he can do finger of death bang 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 he can do fire breath he can do a bunch of things that he can only do when his hit points are at a certain level so this is another kind of example all of these by the way these stat blocks are available for free so you can check these out yourself for free and take a look at, at our mythic monsters did i even answer this question i feel like the cr math for balancing mythic monsters don't worry about the cr math Worry about what you, the kind of monster you're going to build and what sort of challenge you think the characters can take and work with that. CR is really only useful when you're like checking a monster out in a book. It is not a useful calculation when you're making your own monsters. When you're making your own monsters, you build them around what you know the characters are capable of, the kind of hit points they have, the kind of damage that they do, and then you can tune your monster around that way. Michael, I hope that answers your question. Ryan B says, as a backer of both Forge of Foes and MCDM's Flea Mortals, I wonder if you're planning on adding any villain actions to your upcoming book, especially since you've worked with Matt Covell on his Kickstarter to create Count Rodar Von Glauer. I did. I made cool-ass vampires for MCDM. Each project's early content releases have added so much depth to my encounters, it would be cool to see some additional action-oriented monsters, bonus villain action ideas. You're going to see a lot of stuff like it. There's we In our chapter, we specifically talk, we have a chapter on legendary actions where we talk about villain actions we talk about how those work we talk about the different kinds the three different kinds of villain actions that you can give and how you can sort of tune them out but remember that forge of foes is largely a book teaching you how to fish it does offer a lot of different monster powers that can certainly be used as villain actions and it describes how villain actions work and the kinds of villain actions that you can apply i think you're going to be happy with it it isn't like here is a whole toolkit of villain actions you can just apply to monsters you're going to have mcdms you're going to have flea mortals right? Flea Mortals is going to show you a lot of that stuff. It does describe the concepts of villain actions and how they work and gives you the tools to be able to improvise them on monsters that you create. So I think you're going to dig it. We, we did. We definitely some, talked about it a lot, all three of us. So myself and Scott and Teos all have written monsters for MCDM for Flea Mortals. So all of us were very familiar with how that kind of stuff works. And we definitely kept that in consideration when we were writing our book. AS says, I am returning to DMing a live game after 30 year hiatus. What surprises might I expect? I've played lots of TTRPGs in my teens and early 20s. Didn't play much at all for the next 30 years. In the age of COVID, I returned to playing with some of the same people I played with in my youth, now via VTT. We've had a weekly game going for about two years now. We're now planning to gather from across the country and play in person for the first time. This will be my first time DMing 5e live and in person. Any thoughts about surprising differences between playing via VTT and live? Yes. When I, so I, at COVID, I switched from all in-person play to all online play for two years, essentially. For two years, we didn't play in person. We played all online. So now I had no idea how to play online and I learned a whole lot. And now I feel proficient enough to run fun games online. I'm happy to do so. I've offered a lot of advice on it. And then one day we decided to play in person again. It was amazing. I almost cried. Like having all of my friends around the table again, playing D&D again, I almost cried. I was, I was really, really emotional about just having my friends around the table again. Also, I was completely lost. I totally forgot how to play in person. I totally didn't remember what I needed. I didn't remember the tools. I didn't remember all the little tchotchkes and doodads that helped me manage my game at the table. Forgot them all. So yeah, it is really worth thinking about what are the things you're going to need to run the game at the table. It can help you to sit at the table physically and say like, pretend you're running a game. What do you need? Initiative cards. I need some way of tracking initiative. I need some way to keep notes and, and manage hit points. I need my books that have my monster stat blocks in them. I need a some something to draw maps on. Because maps was one of the areas like, I don't know how anybody manages maps. How do we manage maps? Maps is a big one. How are you going to manage maps? I still recommend using a dry erase sharp or dry erase marker and the Paizo flip mat. That's a good way. Another way, if you want to pre-draw your maps, if you know what you're going to be running, 
is get big sheets of one inch gridded graph paper from your local office supply store and a Sharpie and draw out the maps ahead of time on there. It could take a little bit of time, but it's, it's, it's worth it. And you have those big maps as long as you know, you're going to use them. I actually pre-drew a bunch of them and then ended up not using them. So you might be better off just drawing it room by room with a wet erase marker or wet or dry erase marker on a piezo flip mat, which I think is one of the best, most versatile, powerful tools. It's $10. Really, really great. The piezo flip mat is fantastic. The Pathfinder flip mat it's one of the best tools I've ever used and I've used it now for more than a decade and I just adore it and it folds up nicely and it slides in but yeah how to handle maps is a big thing about what you're going to do I bet you by now it's been long enough that I bet you've already run your game so I'm sorry but that's why we're sharing the show is to help other people if you're getting ready to play in person think about all the tools you have I have an article called the lazy DMs toolkit which is about all the physical things you might want to bring to your game I actually had to pack it together because I'm going to run some in-person games this weekend so there is a link there'll be a link down to the that article in the show notes so you can see what are the physical things that I use. I have a video about it as well where I talk about all the physical things that I use. But that probably the biggest question is going to be maps. How are you going to manage maps? Like just drawing the maps and showing them where they're going and showing the different doors and all that stuff. How are you going to handle that? That's a big question. Graham D says, have you ever considered publishing a complete game master's guide? Reading through a bunch of your other articles, it seems to me that you, if you consolidated your previous works and a lot of information from these articles, you would have a very comprehensive, a very helpful game master's guide, something we've all been missing. I'm probably not going to do a game master's guide. However, I almost certainly at some point, I don't know when, maybe a couple of years from now, I've already got a plan for next year. I'm still doing Forge of Foes now. And a year after that, we're going to have to see what this whole industry looks like, what this whole hobby looks like in a couple of years. And at that point, I will probably go back and look at all of the material that we've done, that I've done for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the workbook, the companion, and Forge of Foes, and look at all of this stuff and look at the articles and look at the direction that the game has gotten and say, okay, what needs to be done? And then do some other kind of volume. It is not, it is going to be like an opinionated game master's guide. So one nice thing, one nice position that I'm in that Wizards of the Coast isn't in, one of the advantages that I have that Wizards doesn't is I don't have to be all things to all people. I am not responsible for making sure that everybody is happy with what I put out. I can instead say, this is for a particular kind of GM. This is for a particular GM who approaches the game a particular way. And here are the ways that we can do it. And in return, I even say this, I say like, this is really one way of thinking about it. This is one set of tools that you can use, but I don't have to describe all of the tools. I don't have to have like detailed instructions on how to run gridded combat because there's already a bunch of people doing that and I don't care. I want to talk about how to run theater of the mind or abstract combat. So I can focus my approaches on the things that I think aren't well covered by everybody else. So one of the things I'm going to do is like Wizards of the Coast is going to put out a new Dungeon Master's Guide in 2024. So guess what? I'm not going to be writing a book like that before then. I'm going to write a book like that after then because they're probably not writing another one for a few years. And I can look and say, what did they not put in this book? What, where is this book where, what stuff is missing from this book? What directions might sit well next to this book to help people uh, better run their games. And that's probably the kind of thing that I'm going to write and probably that I'm going to work on. But I'm probably not even going to start thinking about it until after that happens. So it's a couple years away. But in the meantime, if you take the companion, the workbook, return and forge of foes, and you just take them and then like put them side by side, you really have a lot of GM stuff. The other thing that I am putting in is I am going to be putting out the Lazy GM's resource document, a Creative Commons accessible creative commons released set of material that comes from return the workbook and the companion and that thing really is like a, a lightweight gm guide it has a lot of stuff in there to help you so that one html file uh, when i release it patrons have access to it now but everybody will have access and it will be released under a creative commons attribution license which means you can use it commercially you can use it in tool sets you can do whatever you want with it that that book is really like a mini DMs guide, mini GMs guide, because it contains all the material, not all of it, but it contains a lot of material from those three sources. Thank you for that, Graham. Keep your eyes out. James says, I know Curse of Strahd is near your top, if not number one, of Watsy campaigns. I know this has a great villain that is a lot of fun. However, it has some very deadly encounters, especially at low levels. Your comments on Rhyme, of, uh, Rhyme and Avernus is that they take a lot of work. In your opinion, why does Strahd not fall into this category? It seems encounterbalancing would take a bit of prep. Much less prep. It takes a lot less prep to tune encounters early on in an adventure when the rest of the structure of the adventure works well 
pretty well as it is. To me, the definitions that I use for like what's a good adventure and what's a bad adventure is how much extra work I need to do. And how much work do I need to do versus what do I want to do? So many times, like Empire of the Ghouls, I'm changing a lot of it. I'm changing a lot of stuff, but I'm enjoying it. And generally speaking, it works pretty well. There were some parts of it where I feel like, yeah, I'm going to have to change that. There's no way I'm going to run it the way it is in the book. Better books are like uh, Wild Beyond the Witchlight. In Wild Beyond the Witchlight, I ran it and I felt like I could have run this as is. It's probably only the Palace of Heart's Desire. I wouldn't have run the way it is no matter what. But otherwise, I added a lot of stuff, but I, I could use what was in there. Curse of Strahd, I felt the same way i really didn't feel like there was anything in curse of Strahd i had to change and as far as like the encounter balance stuff that really only happens at the lowest level and it was really easy to fix all you had to do was level them up to second level before they went to the death house and as long as they got from first to second level in the first encounter you have them run into a couple of wolves you have them see Strahd, who is polymorphed into a dire wolf and he glares at them and they go oh my god that's a vampire lord and then they go then they get to second level and then they go to death house at second level and after that it's pretty smooth now it's been many years since I've run Curse of Strahd. I haven't run it recently. I've run Castle Ravenloft a lot recently, but I started at a higher level. I haven't run the beginning of it before, but I, I did run it for two different groups. And in both times, all I had to do was get him to second level. And Death House was a lot more streamlined. And then from second to third level in Death House, so that when they get their third level at the bottom instead of second level, they're not going to get their asses kicked by that shambling mound thing. It worked a lot better. So I really didn't feel like Curse of Strahd required me to do a lot of work. And instead it let me, it gave me everything I needed to let the campaign grow the way my I and my group let it grow. And that's one of the reasons why I liked it as much as I did. So in, balancing encounters was far from the hard part of Rime of the Frost Maiden and Descent in Avernus. Those adventures, in, for me, for me to run them, required significant restructuring just to get them to aim anywhere where I wanted them to be. Like, like Rime of the Frost Maiden, you know, there's so many places where there's no reason why you would even go there. And the storyline was so kind of dorky, dorked up that I had to change a whole lot. And Descent into Avernus is the same way. There's two different paths, the path of demons, the path of devils, and both of them suck. And, you know, they, they, the whole drive of the campaign was missing. So it wasn't just about like, oh, it's too hard. And by the way, both of those adventures are also too hard. But that's not the problem. Like changing, changing things around just to fix that wasn't the big problem. The big problem was these major structural adventure changes that I had to do. So that was the big difference for me good question james grant nation says do you have any advice for knowing when you need to take a break in sessions to catch up on prep or or mental steam versus just stopping a campaign entirely mostly this happens to me in homebrew situations when even i lose interest in the story i was telling but i'm always curious if i just pushed a little further if it would if i would find it again so burnout is a real thing and people definitely run into burnout Ginny d did a really good video about burnout and i don't really have a lot of experience it's not something that I've done a lot of polling or surveys on. I have not run into it. I run a bunch of games. I've been running a bunch of games for years and I'm always very excited about them. So I, I haven't really experienced it. So I don't have good advice about how to deal with it. But burnout is a real thing. And if you are feeling it, it's something that you definitely want to not like fight, but work with, figure it out. You know, think about it. Maybe you do need a break. Maybe it's time to let the, someone else DM for a while. Maybe if you're really not finding the joy in the game, you know, there, there are definitely questions you want to ask about the rest of it. However, one of the things I do, like if I'm losing interest is I try to find a new interest in the game. And recall, one of the things that really helps me a lot is I don't think about the campaign. I don't think about big storylines and big plots and all these different kind of interwoven things. I think about, I have a game that I'm going to be running in two days. And in that game, certain things are going to happen. And, and I want that game to be fun. And I think about it almost like a single session. And it's, what are they going to learn? What are they going to do? What are the, op what, not what are they going to do, but what, what's sitting in front of them? How is it going to start? And that's why I think the steps from return really help is that it gives you this structure to walk through this checklist and build a session that's going to be fun for the next game. And you don't have to worry about the bigger picture. So if you're, if you're thinking about it, you're like, I just don't think that's going to be fun. Then the question is like, well, what are you going to do to make it fun? What, or, or, or how are you, how can you steer it differently? Maybe you throw in a whole new scenario. Maybe you do a side quest that looks like fun. Maybe you change the course of direction of the campaign. Whatever the big ideas are that aren't sparking joy with you anymore, set them aside and find a new thing that does. Find a scene from a movie you really like or find a, a piece of art that really speaks to you and kind of build your adventures around that. And hopefully you find a new piece of interest that sort of gets you going. But I really think that that idea of sort of focusing down on the game that you have in front of you. It's you and your friends sitting at a table, rolling some dice, having some fun. They want to watch their characters do cool stuff. You want to watch an interesting story take place that you didn't even think of in the first place. 
and and just going with that simple view of it that's where i find the joy knowing that like i love these like situation based D games where i'm like here's a scene that's going to go on here's what the characters need to accomplish i'm going to put them in there and we're going to see what happens and i just love that to me is real joy whenever i can get back to that the ones i don't really enjoy are when they go to town and i don't know what, the, what they're going to do in town that's always that's always a problem because like, we can do anything. So I hope that helps, Grant. But yeah, but burnout is a real thing. And if you are starting to feel that burnout, you know, again, not fighting it, but thinking about where it's coming from, thinking about why you have it, looking at it analytically, that can really help. But Ginny D has a good video about it. And I'm going to link to that in the notes so you can take a look at that. Plate says, what are your top three tips to give new and seasoned GMs? I'm not going to give you three. I'm going to give you slightly more than three. But on Sly Flourish, on the front is how to be a great dungeon master. It's the third link on the favorite articles list. And in this list, I describe, I think it's like seven or eight instead of three. But these are in priority order. So if you only want three, look at the top three. And these are the ones I have really thought about it. These are ones that I've studied a lot. I've talked to other people about, and I've really kind of narrowed down over the years, over the decade that I've been writing about D&D, over the 30 years that I've been playing it, trying to figure out what I think are these, these good things. And the big ones are let the story unfold at the table. You're not telling the story. You're not, you're, you're not writing out a story before the game happens. The story is what happens at the game. You're setting up a situation. You're getting all the pieces in place, and you're going to see what happens. The story happens at the table not while you're prepping. Set up situations. That's part of it. Set up a situation, give them a goal. Who are the inhabitants? Everything is a heist, right? Who are the, what's the goal? Who's there? What's the location like? You know, and, and bring the characters in and see what happens. I build situations and let the characters navigate them. I find such a joy in running D&D that way. Be on the character's side. Your goal is they are your heroes. You want to see them do cool things. You're on their side. The way the, the the litmus test for this, the little trick, how do you feel when they critically hit? Are you happy or are you sad? If you're sad, you may not be on their side. If you're happy for the crit, you're on their side. If you see them if you're sad when they roll a chat or when you roll a saving throw on a monster and the monster makes it and that doesn't make you feel bad, you're not really on their side. You know, get yourself into the point where you want to watch them succeed. You want to see them nail those awesome spells. You want to see them do great things. You want to really let them be the centerpiece of that story. That's what's really fun. Use the tools and techniques that help you prepare to improvise. Preparing to improvise sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like, you know, duality. But having the material in front of you to be able to improvise the game is really, really useful. Have a cheat sheet with the DCs on it. Have the cheat sheet of what kind of, which ability checks you're going to call on. Have very quick play stats. Have a random set of names in front of you. Use tools. Have a blank poster mat, blank flip mat, you know, Paizo flip mat. The nice thing about a blank flip mat is you can draw anything on it. It's not a road. It's not a castle. It's not an outpost. It's not a cave. You can draw anything on it. So what are the tools that help you prepare to improvise during the game? Those are the tools that you really want to focus on. Focus on your next game. I just talked about it. Don't worry about the bigger campaign. Look at the game that's going to be in front of you and focus on that. Build your world campaign and adventures in the character outwards. This is spiral campaign development. Start with your characters and build outwards. Don't build a huge world with what are all the gods like and what kind of currencies do you have and what's the geography like and what's the 10,000 year history. Talk about where the characters are going to start and talk about what's interesting to them. Pay attention to pacing. Pacing is really easy to lose track of. Understand upward and downward beats. Understand that sometimes good, you want good things to happen and bad things happen, good things to happen and bad things happen. You want stress and ease and stress and ease. Know how to twist those dials of good, bad, good, bad. Not, not exactly like a perfect oscillation. You can have a couple bad things happen. You can have a couple good things happen, but you want to you know, know about pacing, know about moving things forward, know about pushing things to the exciting part. Strong starts, you know, jump cuts, all the different things to keep the pacing going. I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of GMs that have run games where the pacing isn't great and they're just, they're letting everything happen instead of moving things forward. Instead, they'll just let bad thing, bad thing, bad thing, bad thing, instead of giving anything to the characters to make them excited about the game. Focus on the fiction first and the mechanics second. Think about what's happening in the world. Describe what's happening in the world. Talk about the sword cuts. Ask the players to describe their killing blow. Ask them to describe interesting physical characteristics that the monsters are fighting to use for, to identify them. Keep it in the world as much as possible. Talk, talk to the character, not the player, right? Talk to their, use their character name when you address them, not the player name, because you want to constantly be in that first person, in that world going on. So that's more than three. 
free. That's from How to Be a Great Dungeon Master. You can find a link down to that in the show notes below. It's on the front page of Sly Flourish. Those are my top tips. You want to know what my top tips are? There they are. Spike says, I am running two games currently, and they're pretty good. However, I keep getting ideas for new campaigns. The novelty of these games distract me from my thinking about my current campaign. I don't have time to start a new campaign. Any advice? Yeah, this is sort of the opposite of the problem. It's kind of similar to that problem of like, hey, do I need to take a break to go to the next thing? Yeah, that's sort of the grass is always greener is definitely there. Like, oh, a new campaign came out. That'd be really cool. Try to find the cool parts of the one you're running or steal stuff from all those fuzzy ones and bring it in. Do you really like some? You looked at Dungeons of Drakenheim and you really liked the idea maybe do a little miniature version of that in your current campaign did you really like this sort of artwork or this sort of monsters and this other thing find a way to bring them in you know how can you combine them into your campaign the other trick is run shorter campaigns right run run campaigns that run six to eight to ten weeks instead of two years or four years or 30 years or some of these massive campaigns that go on for for a while you know what are the cool things that you can do in your campaign right now that you can really enjoy and how can you condense your campaign down so you can get to the new ones like what if you said i do want to run descent into avernus because it looks really cool but i don't want to run a big campaign figure out what are, what are the cool bits and how do we condense it maybe you start at third level instead of first maybe you jump to them going to hell right where do you go to get the coolest parts to get the biggest focus and run short campaigns i haven't run a four-year campaign in a long time my campaigns now run anywhere from like 10 months to 16 months i think both of my current campaigns are actually going to go a good while my empire of the ghouls game looks like it's going to go a good while but i'm really enjoying it i can't wait to get to the next chapter i think there's going to be really really fun stuff the next two chapters of empire of the ghouls i'm as excited about as any other campaigns that i'm running but i would say if you get really excited find out why you're excited about that and bring it into the current game you've got or run shorter campaigns spike i hope that helps Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter and get more stuff like this in both a weekly RPG-related email that is sent directly to your inbox and a free Adventure Generator PDF sent directly to you. It's all absolutely free. You can also become a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A. They get access to a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, whole bunch of exclusive adventures exclusive video previews and all kinds of great stuff. Plus they help me put on shows like this and you can pick up any of my books, including return of the lazy dungeon master, the lazy DMs companion and the lazy DMs workbook all are available at the Sly Flourish bookstore. You can find the links in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.